From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. In progress. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parsha. Brand new week, Monday, July 25th, 2022. We have a new, a new week with a new Parsha. In fact, it is a double Torah portion. We got a double whammy, Matos and Mase, or Matot, Mase. And finally, from Pesach until now, um, Israel and out of Israel, the diaspora, have been on different Torah portions this week. Finally, not yet, we're not yet aligned, but finally, by the end of this week, we will be aligned because in Israel, they're reading Matot. They did Masse last week. They did Matot last week and Masse this week. And we're doing Matot Masse this week. By the end of the week, we will be all cut up. Finally, it's like that marathon. By the end, we're going to cross the finish line together. Okay, so we have a lot to talk about. It's a lot of, uh, it's a huge portion. It's a double whammy. So let's begin. I'm going to share my screen. And let's get, get rocking. Torah reading Matot Mase in Israel Mase, as I mentioned. Numbers chapter 30, verse number 2. Verse number 2. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing the Lord has commanded. So Moses is now, Moshe is now telling the Jewish people, or the heads of the tribes, a mitzvah, a law. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or makes an oath to prohibit himself. Okay, so there's two things, neder or shavua. Neder is translated as a vow and shavua is translated as an oath. So a vow is I'm going to do something, right? And an oath is I'm not going to do something. At least in this context, that is the implication. A vow would be, this is what I'm going to do. An oath sounds like a prohibition. He shall not, in these cases, he shall not violate his word according to whatever came out of his mouth, he shall do. This is a very uh, core teaching in Torah, and that is what we say, we must keep. Especially in the context of a vow or an oath, what we say must be kept. By the way, Rashi is going to give us Another understanding, a deeper understanding of the difference between vows and oaths. So let's just keep it. This is what the implication is from the verse, but we'll see what Rashi says based on the commentaries that the, uh, and the Talmud, etc. The, but, the, but the bottom line is, no matter what it is, whether it's a vow or an oath or anything in between, lo yachel dvaro, do not violate your word. Whatever you say, you should do. Now, Yachel, Rashi will explain, Yachel it comes from the word chol. Like chol, uh, like the weekday. In Havdalah we say, God, we bless God, we thank God, the one who separates between Kodesh, holy, Shabbos, and chol, weekday. Lo yachel dvar means mundane. Sorry, chol means mundane. Week, weekday, mundane, ordinary. Don't make your words ordinary. Don't make them mundane. Keep them sacred. Keep them holy. Whatever you say, keep Verse number four. 
Now we continue and we get to a situation where you have a young, a young woman, a young girl who makes a vow and now is looking to get out of it. And the Torah will tell us that although we just said, whatever you say you should do, in certain cases, there's a way to override and cancel the vow or cancel the oath. There is an escape hatch, especially when you're dealing with somebody young or even someone older, you have to go to a betin, a court, to annul the vow. But anyway, the, 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 so the, the baseline is whatever you say you should do. And here are some exceptions. If a woman makes a vow to the Lord or imposes a prohibition upon herself while in her father's house in her youth, right, young girl makes a vow. If her father heard her vow or prohibition which she has prohibited upon herself, yet her father remains silent if he hears about it, or he hears it and he says, okay, Sounds good. All her vows shall stand. If it's not overridden by her father, all her vows should stand, shall stand. And any prohibition that she has imposed upon herself shall stand. So whatever she said she would do, she has to do. Whatever she said she won't do, she can't do. That's it. But if her father hinders her, hinders her means if he disrupts the vow on the day he hears it, then all her vows and all her prohibitions that she has imposed upon herself shall not stand. The Lord will forgive her because her father hindered her. I, yeah, hindered is a weird, to me, it's a weird word. Um, hinder? Basically, we're talking about an annulment of vow or a, um, what's another word for annulment? Um, it's another word for annulment. Cancel. If he, if he hears, if he's, if he hears about his, if he hears his daughter making a vow or he hears about his daughter making a vow and says, nah. That's not, that's not realistic, or she's, she, she's not serious, or she doesn't know what it means, whatever. Then, again, for this young girl, her, 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 her vow or her oath is annulled, is canceled. But if she is betrothed to a man with her vows upon her or by an utterance of her lips, which she has imposed upon herself, and her husband hears of it, remains silent on the day he hears it, her vow shall stand, and her prohibition which she has imposed upon herself shall stand. This is talking about, again, a young girl, who was betrothed to a man. Now, this would not work in today's day and age where the marriageable age is obviously much older than it was back in the day in biblical times. Back in biblical times, even a young girl could theoretically be engaged or betrothed. And that's in fact how it was done in many societies, in many civilizations, in many time periods and eras, including in, uh, in, in, in Jewish communities as well where young girls, I don't know how young, but young girls would be already kind of betrothed or basically like a glorified version of engagement to a man. If that's the case, and she makes a vow, so she's no longer, so to speak, in her father's domain. She's no longer, you know, she's now betrothed to a guy. So no, her father no longer has that kind of, uh, yeah, that, that type of veto power, as it were. So then it goes by the husband or by the betrothed husband. I don't know if she's fully husband, but whatever, that, that, that betrothal, the, the dude that she's betrothed to, basically. So if her husband hears it, but remains silent on the day he hears it, then her vow shall stand, like we said with the dad. And her prohibition, which she has imposed upon herself, once again, shall stand. Again, if he hears it and says, okay, sounds good, then it's cemented. But if her husband hinders her on the day he heard it, then he has revoked the vow she has taken upon herself and the utterance which she had imposed upon herself and the Lord will forgive her. So he can annul it, cancel it, or hinder it, depending on whichever version of uh, verb you like. 
but he has the power to do so. Again, we're talking about a young girl um, that we understand may need some protection from herself as a minor, as it were, to, uh, to the vows that she takes and the oath that she makes. As for the vow of a widow or divorced woman, whatever she is, she prohibited upon herself will remain upon her at that point. She's on her own. But if she vowed in her husband's house or imposed a prohibition upon herself with an oath and her husband heard and remained silent, did not hinder her, all her vows shall stand and every prohibition she imposed upon herself shall stand. If her husband invoked, revokes them. Here we say revokes as opposed to hinders. Okay, maybe different words in the Hebrew. It looks like slightly different. Although, yeah, heni and hefer. Okay. For her husband revokes them on the day he hears them, anything issuing from her lips regarding her vows or self-imposed prohibitions shall not stand. Her husband has revoked them and the Lord shall forgive her. Again, same idea. Any vow or any binding oath of self-affliction, her husband can either uphold or revoke it. However, if her husband remains silent from day to day, he has upheld all the vows and prohibitions she has assumed. He has upheld them since he remained silent on the day he heard it. Now, if he tries to, re- if he revokes them after having heard them, he shall bear her iniquity. In other words, if he says, "Oh, now nah, forget it; it's canceled," but it's all, but but it's it's too late, and then she doesn't follow through with it because he told her you're okay, then he's the one who's guilty. He shall bear her iniquity because the vow is not canceled. He woke up too late on this, and thus she is in violation of her own vow, and that's a problem. But he gets, he takes the fall. These are the statutes. Now, these 16 verses that we just read, from verse 2, well, 15 verses, from 2 through 16. The Torah kind of uh, uh, summarizes. These are the statutes. Statutes meaning not necessarily a logical thing, but kind of super rational. These are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses concerning a man and his wife, a father and his daughter in her youth, while she is in her father's house. So these are all things that God commanded Moses, which it's important that the Torah tells us this at the end because it didn't open with God telling Moses. Right? It's just as Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes, saying, usually, laws, halachot, mitzvot, are prefaced by saying, God spoke to Moses, saying. Don't say that here. It says, Moses spoke to the people, to the heads of the tribes, saying. And so you're wondering, the reader is left to wonder, the student of Torah is left to wonder, did, God, did Moses make it up? So Torah says, no, he didn't. All of these statutes were the ones that the, that the Lord commanded Moses regarding these very topics. Okay, let's pause here for a moment. Any questions? Questions, comments? Okay, let's look at Rashi. Oh, wow, look at this. Look at this, a lot of Rashi's here. Let's jump in. Um, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes. Rashi, he honored the chieftains, the heads, the tribal heads, by teaching them first and only later the rest of the Israelites. Now, how do we know that he did so with other statements. In other words, how do we know that in general he taught Torah this way as well? For it says, Moses called to them and Aaron and all the princes of the children, sorry, of the community returned to him, and Moses would speak to them. Afterwards, all the children of Israel would draw near in Exodus 34. In other words, it says already in Exodus that the protocol was Moses called Aaron and the princes, the leaders of the, of the tribes, and then afterwards he would speak to the entire nation. So that was the protocol. First, the leaders, and then the larger community. 
If so, Rashi asked the obvious question. If so, why did Scripture see fit to mention it here? So then why, if we already know this from Exodus, so why does the Torah tell us that Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes? We know that. We get it. He could have just said he spoke to the people, and we know that first he spoke to the heads of the tribes and then to the people. So the answer is, it teaches. it is to teach us a specific law, and that is that, that annulment of vows may be performed by a single expert, and if no single expert is available, it may be annulled by three laymen, by three laymen. So in other words, it could be done by even a single expert, i.e. like a leader of the tribe. Alternatively, perhaps Moses related this passage to the princes alone. In other words, maybe one could argue that no, that we don't, we don't need to go any further. He just told this to the leaders, and the leaders later transmitted it to the people. Maybe Moses didn't gather everyone and tell it to them. However, here it says this is the word. And the chapter dealing with sacrifices... Um, slaughtered outside the, the temple confines. It also says this is the word. Just as there it was said to Aaron, his sons, and all the Israelites, it says speak to Aaron, etc. So in this case, it was said to all of them. So in other words, bottom line, without getting into the question and answer, because there's a lot, some nitty-gritty over here, Rashi proves from a series of other verses that Moses spoke first to the tribal leaders, then to the rest of the people, and that was done always, and here it's specified, to tell us that a leader and an expert is able to annul a vow, uh, not unilaterally, but is able to annul the vow of a lay person. If there's no expert, there's no leader expert, then you go to three laymen that serve as a de facto bet-in or a mini-court. Um, this is the thing Moses prophesied with, so said the Lord at the dividing point of the night. Co. Uh, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's not going to work in the English. The, Moses said, so says the Lord, Ko, Amar Hashem. And the prophets prophesied with the phrase, so said the Lord, Ko, Amar Hashem. But Moses surpassed them all, but Moses surpassed them, for he prophesied with the expression, this is the thing. I'll explain. Um, let me explain. You have... The other prophets, and even Moses in Egypt, prophesied using the phrase ko, which is Hebrew for thus, or so. Ko amar Hashem, thus says the Lord, or so says the Lord. That was God says such and such. Where's the word of God? Thus. That's ko. Ze, it's a different word, ze, not ko. Zeh means this. This is the word of God. What's the difference between thus is the word of God or this is the word of God? Thus or so means it's out there somewhere. This means this right here. This is the word of God. It's right here. So Moses was so immediately in the presence of God. Moses was so intimately connected with God that when he relayed God's word, it was this is the word of God. This is what God said. This right here. I got it. The other prophet said, Ko Amar Hashem. So said God. Right? Thus said God. Not this. Thus. It's like out there somewhere because they remain separate from God's word. So Rashi points out right here that Mo, uh, uh, an indication in the wording that Moses' prophecy was head and shoulders above everyone else's. All right, back inside. That's one interpretation. Another interpretation this is the thing is exclusive, informing us that a sage revokes a vow 
with the expression hatara, release, and her husband and the husband through the expression hafara, revocation, as scripture has here. If they exchange these terms, it is neither a release nor a revocation. Now, I know what you're thinking. What's the difference between a release and a revocation? It sounds like both are annulling the vow. Again, one can say, oh, your vow is hatara, released. Or you could say, hafara, your vow is revoked. Release and revoke. What's release and revoke? To me, this is without, without getting into the Medrash and the Talmud. To me, it's like this. A, a release is saying, from here on out, you no longer have to abide by the oath. You took the oath. It was a binding commitment, but you're now released from the oath. Revoked means that the oath is almost pulled out from under you. It's like no more oath. Release, again, this is just my speculation without being familiar with the Talmudic, without being uh, recently familiar with the Talmudic piece and the, and the halacha discussion. Release makes it sound like the oath is still here and you're being rescued from the oath. Revocation of the oath makes it sound like the oath itself is being undone. So a bit of a different terminology. So if you look back inside, Rashi points out that it's that the sage is able to release you from the oath, whereas in the case of the husband and the young wife, it's he can revoke the oath. He can just totally undo the oath from the beginning. It's not an oath. It doesn't exist. All right, let's continue with the Rashis. A vow. Okay, so what's, what's a vow? Rashi. By saying, it shall be prohibited just like a sacrifice that I will not eat or I will not do a certain thing. That's a vow. That's a nether. Somebody who says, um, this thing is prohibited to me like a sacrifice, like, a, like an offering. I'm not a Kohen. I couldn't eat a sacrifice, a sacrificial meat. Nor will I eat, somebody says, imagine, somebody says, I'm not saying this, by the way, for the record, just to clarify, for all those listening, somebody says, ah, to me, sushi is like a sacrifice. I will not eat sushi. Done. Forget it. I don't know why anyone would say that. I mean, it sounds, sounds crazy. But imagine somebody says that. Um, so that's a nether. That's a nether. Prohibiting upon oneself. Now, one might think that even if he swears to eat carrion, carrion means nevelot, uh, um, an animal that died, right? Died in the field. So one might think that even if he swears to eat carrion, which is not, it's not shechter properly, it's not slaughtered properly. So I applied to him according to whatever came out of his mouth he shall do. In other words, what if somebody says, well, I'm going to eat this stuff, so he has to eat it? Scripture therefore says to prohibit it, to, to, to prohibit, to prohibit what is pro- permitted, but not to permit what is prohibited. In other words, you can't take an oath or uh, a vow, sorry, to obligate yourself to eat something not kosher and be like, well, I have to eat it now because I, I, I vowed and the Torah says I have to keep my word. So I guess I have to eat it now. That would be, the, that would be like a ridiculous life hack. I mean, a horrible hack, right? Saying, oh, I, I took a vow for cheeseburgers, so what are you going to do? I, that's not a thing. The Torah only says... That you can take a vow to prohibit something that otherwise is permitted, but not to permit something that's already prohibited. You can't do that. That's not a vow. It's not a vow. That's just, that's just a violation of, uh, of, of halacha, of the law. Let's keep on going. He shall not violate his word. Um, he shall not profane his word. He shall not treat his word as being unholy. And here we have a beautiful idea. 
When we pledge, verbally pledge, when we commit to something, to not fulfill the commitment is to profane our words and treat them as unholy, meaning they lose their sacredness. You know the story of, or the, I don't know if it's a story, but the boy who cried wolf, right? So the first time you cry wolf, everyone takes you seriously. Wolf, ah, where's the wolf? Then, and then there's no wolf. Then the next time, wolf, ah, wolf. By the third or fourth time, everyone's like, all right, lost your credibility. We don't want to lose credibility. In fact, it's not good. It's not good for us to lose our credibility. It's not good for our words to carry no weight. But that's what happens when we say things and we don't follow through. Then that means that whenever we say something, everyone's like, yeah, whatever. Sure, sure, absolutely. 100%, I have full faith. And you roll your eyes as you walk by. Right, I mean, that's, what's, that's, that's what happens when we promise things and don't deliver. So the Torah says when we take a vow or an oath, we got to follow through. Unless it's annulled, which of course the Torah continues to discuss. Um, while in her father's house, that means under her father's jurisdiction, even if she's not actually in his house, and if she's a minor, she's under her father's care. It's no different. You know, imagine, imagine your kid comes home one day and says, you know what, I made a deal. I made a deal. I'm going to, um, what's the deal? I'm going to think of something that, that, is a pa- that parent would say, are you kidding me? What did you do? The child says, um, I, I, I'm gonna, I, I committed to sell. What would they sell? Imagine you give your kid. Imagine, oh, I have, I have a ran, totally random example, but I think it works. Completely random. All right, imagine you give your child your vintage record collection. Again, this is assuming multiple things. Assuming you have a vintage, a vintage record collection and, you, you, and you, you feel so connected with your vintage record collection and you want your child to like appreciate uh, um, what would be vintage now. I mean, what would be vintage? I don't know, like the Rolling Stones. Like, I'm trying to think like what's vintage. Um, Pearl Jam, is Pearl Jam vintage? I don't know. Anyway, so like you want to like bequeath your uh, your Beatles collection, uh, whatever, like whatever your, your age and stage is. So you want to, you, you give your child, your teenager who's listening to, you know, all the other types of music, give them your vintage record collection. And you say, here, one day you'll listen to it and you'll enjoy it. In the meantime, here it is, it's yours. They come to you the next day and like, by the way, Thank you for the vintage record collection. You're thinking, oh, wow, great. Did you listen to it? Because, you know, the kids' doors close all the time. Again, stereotypical teenage stuff, hashtag, right? So they're like, no, I actually sold it to a, to a friend of mine for 50 bucks, all the records. You're like, what? What did you do? He's like, yeah, I, I, I committed to sell them. So here's the question. As a parent, do you have the ability to override that promise? The answer is yes, absolutely, of course. But again, obviously it depends on the age and the stage and whatever. But while a child is under the jurisdiction of the parents, then one, again, in this context, I'm just giving you an example of where we could relate to the uh, um, benefit of having this kill switch, as it were, or this override button, this nope button. We're like, oh yeah, I sold your vintage record. I sold, you gave me the vintage recollection and now I sold it. Nope, no you didn't. That's not sold. That's not a thing. You're not doing that. 
Nope. And now you're grounded. No, I'm kidding. No, but I'm just saying like that's, that would be an example I think that we can all relate to. So if a child, or in this case the daughter, is under her father's jurisdiction, yeah, he does, even if she's not living in his house, he has the, uh, the right, as it were, to override bad decisions, essentially. All right, let's continue. Hey, Mark. Oh, hold on. Uh, hi, Mark. Great to hi. see you. Okay. No worries. Um, okay, so now in her youth, so Rashi clarifies what we've been talking about up until now about uh, the father annulling the daughter's vows. Neither a minor nor an adult above age of 12 and a half, since a minor's vows, vows are invalid and an adult is not under her father's jurisdiction to revoke her vows. Aha. So Rashi explains that a minor, somebody, a girl under bat mitzvah, under 12, her, her, her pledges are not binding anyway. Above the age of majority, uh, a, when she's already the age of majority, then he doesn't have any rights anymore. The father doesn't have any rights. So then what's considered a minor? In, in other words, what is, what is this, this scenario of her, in her youth? When the father, when her vows would mean something, but her father could override it. Very, very narrow window of time. A rabbi said, a girl of 11 years and, and a day, her vows are examined. If she knew in whose name she vowed or in whose name she consecrated something, her vow stands. In the age of 12 years and one day, she does not need to be tested. The Talmud says, basically, from bat mitzvah up, 12 years and a day, then whatever she says stands. And from 11 years in one day, so that year, the year before the bat mitzvah, so if she understands the significance of the vow and what it means to, to, to really make a vow, so then it stands, and that's when her father could still override it because she's not over the age of bat mitzvah. Okay. Obviously, the example I gave before about the teenager wouldn't apply because that's over bar and bat mitzvah, so the father at that point loses the jurisdiction altogether. Oh, well, there goes your vintage record collection. All right, back inside. But if her father hinders her, Haney, if he prevented her from fulfilling the vow, that is to say, he revoked it. Okay, the rest of it is explaining the grammar. Let's continue. And the Lord will forgive her. What does that mean? To what case does the, ver does the verse refer? To a woman who took a Nazarite vow. Nazarite vow means to be a Nazar, not to cut hair, not to drink wine, and not to come in contact with the dead. And her husband heard and revoked it for her without her knowledge. Ah, ah. So he revoked it, but she didn't know. And then she transgressed her vow by drinking wine and becoming unclean through contact with corpses. Such a woman requires forgiveness even though it was revoked because she didn't know it was revoked and she violated what she thought to be her oath. It's a very interesting scenario. So she took an oath of being a Nazar and then she violated her own oath. But in the interim, her husband, unbeknownst to her, had annulled it, but so officially, she, so theoretically, she should be, you know, in the clear. Nope, she's not in the clear because she didn't know about it, and thus intentionally she violated her vow, even though her vow had been revoked. And if those which have been revoked requires forgiveness, all the more so those which have not been revoked, and somebody just breaks it straight up, certainly that requires forgiveness. If she is betrothed to a man, Rashi, this refers to a betrothed woman, an Arusa, which is the first stage of marriage, when the marriage ceremony has been performed, but the couple does not yet live together. And that's um, just a quick note, note of clarification here. 
Um, there are two parts to a Jewish wedding. One is known as Erosin, and the other one is called Nisuyin. Now, back in the day... Oh, hey, Reva, you want to say hi? Aww. Hey, Reeves. Reva, say hi to everybody. It's like old times. You want to sit on my lap? No, you hungry? You want to sit on my lap? No, you hungry? Okay, you have to go to the pantry and find some snacks, okay? When I'm done teaching, I can come help you. All right. Um, it's called Dad Camp. In case you're wondering, Dad Camp. So, Arison and Nisuin, back in the day, so these are two distinct stages. Back in the day, they were separated usually uh, by a span of time, usually about a year. For many years, the tradition was that they, are separ- they were separated by a full year in between. Arison is basically where the couple pledge um, commitment to each other. He gives her a ring. She accepts the ring. He betrothes her. I don't know why I'm doing that in air quotes, but he says, I hereby betroth you with this. Uh, um, you are hereby betrothed to me with this ring in accordance with the law of Moses and Israel. And so he says that declaration, witnesses uh, see it, she accepts the ring, she accepts the binding commitment, and essentially at that point, oh, you know what it's like? It's like being under contract in a house. I don't know why I never thought of this example. It's unbelievable. Wow, it, like, it kind of makes sense. It's like under contract. Under contract means that there's a contract, there's, a, there's an agreement, there's an understanding, and there's an exclusivity. You're, not, you're no longer showing the house. You're no longer available for other purchasers. Again, it's not exactly the same, obviously, but it means that this couple is now, they're earmarked for each other, they're under contract. Now, you don't move in yet until you close. Closing is Nisuyin. That's step two of a, of a Jewish wedding. And back in the day, those were separated, not by 30 days, not by 45 days, not by 60 days, but by a full year. In many, many eras of Jewish history, they were separated by a year. They would betroth, get betrothed, or betroth, and then a year later, they would have the Nisuyin and uh, finish that, um, you know, culminate the marriage, and they would then live together. Today, nowadays, and it's because of war and 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 exile, and no one has a for many years. No one had a year to fool around in between. And it was like in that year, people would go off to war, people would travel, they would disappear. That's not not a way to to, to get married. So they, uh, they, they, they collapse that span of time. And they, in Jewish law, it's designated now that everything is done under the chuppah. Everything is done at the same time. The erisin and the nisuin. So the erisin is the ring. It's the giving of the ring, right? The, the groom gives the, bride, gives, the, gives the ring to the bride. Says that line, Hariyam HaKadosh Ali, that I mentioned before. Witnesses see it. Uh, there's a glass of wine involved. And that's the, nisuin, that's the erisin. That's step one. Then we read the ksuba, the ketubah. That's like a separation. And then we do the Nisuyin, which is another glass of wine with seven blessings, culminating with the Yichud room, the private seclusion for the bride and groom. And that's what Nisuyin is all about. That culminates the marriage. And then, of course, they live happily ever after, please God, as husband and wife. So that we do nowadays at the same time. But getting back over here, Rashi's telling us that this scenario 
uh, of betrothal is referring to the first stage of marriage. Uh, the marriage ceremony has been performed, at least part of it, but the couple does not yet live together. Um, okay, skipping some Rashis. One second. With her vows upon her, which she had vowed while in her father's house, but her father had not yet had not heard them, so they, they were neither revoked nor upheld. Interesting. She's talking about a case where she, it might even be an old vow that she took, but her father never knew about it, and now she's betrothed, and now her husband finds out about it, right? So here you have the case that if the husband upholds it, it stands, but if he revokes it, then it's revoked. Okay? Rashi, I might think that even if, her, even if the father had not revoked it, it is revoked. Scripture therefore teaches in her youth while in her father's house, verse 17, throughout her youth, she is under her father's jurisdiction. All right. Um, but the vow of a widow or divorced woman, whatever she proved upon herself will remain upon her, Rashi, since she is neither under the jurisdiction of her father nor of her husband, so therefore she's on her own, and if she makes the oath, she's stuck. Scripture refers to a widow from marriage, but if she's widowed from betrothal, as soon as her betrothed husband has died, she reverts to the jurisdiction of her father. Of if the marriage was never culminated, if there was only heiress in the first part, which is betrothal, and then her husband died, so then she goes back under officially under the uh, jurisdiction of her dad. Uh, but if she made a vow in her husband's house, Scripture refers to a married woman in Isuya, that's somebody who's already fully married. Um, okay. Let's continue and vow a binding oath of self-affliction. Rashi, since it says the husband may revoke, I might think that this includes all vows. Scripture therefore says of self-affliction, he can only he can revoke only vows of self-affliction. In other words, only of deprivation. If she says, I'm, I won't eat this, or I won't go there, or, I won't do that, or I won't, I won't eat wine, drink, sorry, eat wine, I won't drink wine, I won't eat sushi, I won't, uh, you know, go to a concert, whatever it is, if she's depriving herself, and that stands, of course, to you know, affect the husband as well. So then uh, the husband has the option, again, based on age and stage, etc., to revoke that vow. Um, but if it's, uh, you know, I vow to study Torah or go to shul or whatever it is, then the husband obviously can't, um, can't uh, get in the way of any of that. Um, day to day, Rashi, what does that mean? He may revoke. So that you should not say that he's the power to revoke for 24 hours. As it says from day to day, to inform you that he may revoke only until nightfall. He only has until nightfall to revoke, not 24 hours. <laughs> All right, interesting. Uh, after having heard them, after he heard and upheld them by saying, I approve of it, and then he retracted and revoked even on that very day, he shall bear iniquity, he takes your place. We learn from here that if someone causes fellow to stumble, he bears his punishment in his place. Very interesting. That's a powerful lesson. Somebody who causes someone else to stumble pays the price, right? If the one who caused the, the problem is the one who pays it. Someone who caused someone else to mess up, they, it comes after them, ultimately. All right, and now, now we're at the number chapter 21. Let's go. Let's continue. This is great. Remember, we have a double portion, so each reading is going to be about double the length. Number chapter 31, brand new topic. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, listen to this, listen carefully. Take revenge for the children of Israel against the Midianites. Remember, the Midianites were the ones who enticed the Jewish men into sin by sending their daughters to entice them into to acts of immorality and idolatry. Double whammy. 
immorality and idolatry, both big no-nos in Judaism. So, so, and, and, and the plague broke out and 24,000 Jews died, etc. So God tells Moses, now is the time to take revenge against the Midianites. And then, in other words, you're going to go to war and give them their just desserts. Afterwards, God says, after this battle against Midian, you will be gathered to your people, which we know from the countless times in Torah that it appears is a euphemism for you will pass away. So take revenge against the Midianites and afterwards you will be gathered to your people. That will be your final act of leadership. So what does Moses do? Imagine, imagine someone's told, when you finish this, then you pass away. What would the average person do? Kick that can down the road. It's like, oh, you're saying if I go, if I lead the people to battle against Midian, then it's it for me? Okay, so we'll do Midian like in a year or two. We got time. We got time first. We got to deal with all this other stuff. Then we'll get back to the, to the war against Midian. Not what God, that's not what Moses does. Moses hears this, and the next thing you know, verse 3, so Moses spoke to the people. Immediately, he went to the people. He did not delay the commandment based on personal fear or personal desire to live longer. He went to fulfill his mission from God because that's Moses. So Moses immediately spoke to the people saying, arm from among you men for the army, arm for the army, that they, be, that they can be against Midian. In other words, start gearing up, soldiering up to fight against Midian and carry out the revenge of the Lord against Midian. What's interesting is that God says, take revenge for the people of Israel. And Moses says, take, take revenge of God. Both parties suffered at the hands of the Midianites. The Jews fell into immorality and idolatry. And God also got hurt because his, his beloved Israel strayed. So God says, it's not about me, it's about you. Go take your revenge. And Moses, it's not about us, it's about you, God. Each one is fighting for the other's honor. It's a very special, very special fight, so to speak, fight. When you're fighting for the other, it's not a fight. It's, an, it's, a, it's a statement of love. God loves us, so he says to Moses, take revenge for what he did to you guys. Moses loves God, so he says, let's take revenge for what the Midianites did to God. How many soldiers? A thousand for each tribe, a thousand for each tribe. From all the tribes of Israel, you shall send to the army 12,000 soldiers total, one from each of the 12 tribes, including Manasseh and Ephraim, excluding, obviously, Levi. The Levites were never drafted into the army. 12,000 soldiers. From the thousands of Israel, 1,000 was given over for each tribe, 12,000 armed for battle. That's the way it played out. Moses sent them, the thousand from each tribe, to the army. Them, along with Pinchas, the son of Elazar the Kohen, to the army. Well, Pinchas, well, he, we, knew, we know he was good with the spear, so uh, he sure knew how to, how to handle a weapon. So the 12,000 soldiers go along with Pinchas, the son of Elazar the Kohen, to the army with the sacred utensils and the trumpets for sounding in his possession. Sacred you know, Yeah. Can interrupt you? Absolutely. I, I'm looking at Rashi here. He says um, about the, the soldiers from the tribes, it includes like Oh, it includes Levi? Interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's, this is good. That's why, uh, that's why we got, that's why we got Rashi. Good. Excellent. So that includes, includes Levi. And here Pinchas, 
who was a Levite, was a Kohen at that point, right? Pinchas, the son of Eleazar the Kohen, he also goes along, and they took the sacred utensils and the trumpets. Remember the Torah told us about fashioning silver trumpets to go out in battle. So they took all these things to the war. They mounted an attack against Midian as the Lord had commanded Moses, and they killed every male. That's, that's a lot of killing. And they killed the Midianite kings upon their slain, Evi, Rechem, Tzor. By the way, Tzor was Cusby's dad. Remember the, the Midianite princess who was with uh, the Jewish tribal leader, Zimri and Cusby? So she was Cusby Bas Tzor, Cusby Bat Tzor, Cusby the daughter, the daughter of Tzor. Now he was killed. His daughter was killed when it happened, and now he's killed in battle. Evi, Rechem, Tzor, Chor, and Reva. Reva. The five kings of Midian, they were killed. And Balaam, oh, Balaam the son of Baar, they slew with the sword as well. They also killed Balaam. The commentaries wonder, why was Balaam around? Balaam wasn't from Midian. He had been pulled in to curse the people, but he didn't live there. And the Talmud answers something powerful, something crazy. Balaam was in Midian at that time. He got caught up in the crossfire. Why was he there? To collect his money. To collect his money. He was there to collect payment for his cursing, but the cursing didn't work out, so he eventually gave the advice as a consultant to how to entice the Jewish men to sin. And it worked. Eventually it worked, but he was home already. You know, he gave the advice and bounced. So now he was coming back to collect payment. Look at that. Look at that. That's why we send invoices today. Digital invoices are so much safer. You don't need to show up to Midian. You just say, hey, pay it by credit card, uh, ACH, bank wire, or, of course, PayPal and uh, Zelle or any other cash app payment. Yes. Mark. Rabbi Ari. Yeah. You got to check out what Rachi says about the sacred vessels on Bali. I'm going to check it out soon. By the way, I don't know if you noticed, right, I've been blocking it the whole time, but right behind me, I don't know if you can see, if I move ever so, if I move ever so slightly. I can see, yeah. Yeah. I got, I got the set right there. Now, I'm not referencing it right now, because Mark, that's why you're here. Um, but it is literally right behind me, next to, by the way, a set of Tintin. You guys know Tintin? The comics? Tintin? Anyway. I got that from my kids recently. Um, that was my Prime Day, Amazon Prime Day purchase. <laughs> anyway, something, reading material for the kids for the summer. Yeah, Tintin, Tintin is really famous in France. Yeah, well, Tintin was French. I mean, Tintin, Tintin. Yeah, Hegre, he whatever his name is. He was uh, the author. He was French. Oh, Hergé. Oh, Hergé. Yeah, there you go. That guy also. Uh, from Belgium. Oh, Belgium. But I feel like Belgium yeah, and France... I went, to, I went to the Tintin Museum there. Nice. You should know... Here's what's wild. Noticing I'm not reaching for Rashi. I'm just reaching for Tintin at this point. <laughs> the, last, the last volume is an eight-volume set. Volume eight. Right? The last one is called Tintin Alf Art. I don't know exactly what that means, but here's what I do know. It looks like it was unfinished. It's in sketch form, and I think it's French. Do you recognize any of those words? Is it French? Uh, I cannot see. It's probably French because it's from the French Belgium. French part of Belgium. Two, two. Hello, Emma. 
Ella, I don't know. I don't know how to read it, but yeah, basically, I think it's French. All right, back to our back to the story. Yeah, we'll get to the vessels in a moment, Mark. Um, we'll talk about the vessels, but let's see how the war plays out. Let's jump back in. Oh, so Balaam was killed because he went to collect money. There you go. The children of Israel took the Midianite women and their small children captive. And they plundered all the, their beasts, the animals, livestock. A beast would be like uh, more wild animals, livestock, domesticated, and all their possessions. They set fire. Wow, this is brutal. They set fire to all their residential cities and their castles. They took all the booty and all the plunder of man and beast. They brought the captives, the plunder, and the booty to Moses and to Lazar the Kohen and to the entire community of Israel in the camp in the plains of Moab by the Jordan and Jericho. So they went, and by all accounts, they went to war, and by all accounts, the war, the battle was successful for the side of the Jews. They killed the kings, they killed Balaam, they killed the men, they uh, took the women and children captive, they took, they plundered all the stuff and the animals and the possessions and all the wealth, and they brought it back with them. Okay. Listen, here's the deal. As a guy who grew up, you know, in the last, you know, few decades, whatever it is, I don't feel like I'm such a war guy. I'm just like, it's not my thing. I don't relate to it. It's like hard to imagine. So like the, the killing and the plundering and all this stuff, you know, it's not, not my speed. But look, we're studying Torah and that's, uh, that was a reality then. And the Midianites certainly had, had wreaked havoc for the Jewish people. So that's, that's the way it unfolded. That is the way it unfolded. Let's jump inside. Uh, we're going to do Rashi's again from the chapter 31 break. Let's jump right in. Rashi, Rashi, Rashi. Here we go. Take revenge against the Midianites, Rashi, but not against the Moabites. Midianites, but not the Moabites. Why? The Moabites were also behind the plot to take down the Jews. For the Moabites were involved in the matter out of fear since they were afraid of being plundered by them, by the Jewish people, because, because all it says is, do not provoke them into battle. But the Midianites were angered over a dispute which did not concern them. In other words, Moab at least was afraid, I mean unwarranted, but they were afraid that the Jews would go after them. Midianites, for no reason, got involved in a, in a fight against the Jewish people. Another interpretation, because of the two good doves, virtuous proselytes, converts, whom I have in mind to bring forth from them, namely Ruth, the Moabites, the Moabites, Moabites, there you go, and Nama the Ammonites. So these are the two. We talked about Ruth from Moab once before in a previous Rashi, and now we are also adding Nama from Ammon, and Ammon and Moab, those were two twin nations. So therefore God says, don't go after the Moabites. We need them around. There's some stuff in the, in the future, but the Midianites, you can get rid of, or you can go to battle against them. Moses spoke, and I, I mentioned this before, powerful Rashi. Although he heard, Moses heard that his death depended on the matter, on this battle, he, he did it joyfully without delay. He didn't push it off. He didn't say, well, let me give myself another few weeks, another few months. No, he did it right away. Arm, uh, arm for battle, arm with weapons. Men, righteous men. Choose righteous men. Men who are wise and renowned. Not just uh, the strongest, but also those that have merits, spiritual merits. And take the revenge of the Lord. For anyone opposing Israel is reckoned as opposing the Holy One, blessed be He. If you take down, if you're trying to take down the Jew, then you are fighting, then you're, if you're starting up with the Jew, you're starting up with God as well. A thousand for each tribe. Ah, uh, as Mark pointed out, from all the tribes, 
including the tribe of Levi, Rashi clearly says, Levi included. Usually Levi uh, is like batteries, right? Batteries not included, Levi not included. This time Levi is included. Uh, given over, given over, the passive form is used to inform you of the virtue of the Israelite shepherds, leaders, how cherished they were by Israel. When, when they had not yet heard of his death, what did they say? Just a little longer and they will stone me. But as soon as they heard that Moses' demise was contingent upon the revenge against Midian, they refused to go. Oh, wow. Look at that. The soldiers said, no, we're not going. The soldiers refused. Because they said, we know that, that when we go into war and we're successful, then our leader's going to die. Moses will pass away. So we're not going. So Moses acts right away. He, he puts the plan into motion. But the soldiers, the people themselves said, not, not happening, Mo, Moses. We're not going. Until they were given over against the will, they were forced to go into battle. How? I don't know. But somehow they were forced to do it. That's what the Midrash says. Three Midrashim. Sifri, Tanchoma, and Rabbah. So they sent them along with Pinchas. This shows that Pinchas equaled them all. Why did Pinchas go and not Elazar? The Holy Ghost, he said, the one who began the mitzvah by killing Cosby, the daughter of Tzor, should finish it. In other words, he, he started the killing of the Midianite princess, so let him, let him go and finish it off. Another interpretation, he sought the vengeance of Joseph, his maternal grandfather. For it says, and the Midianites sold him. How do we know that Pinchas' mother was descended from Joseph? Because it says, Allah, the son of Aaron, took himself one of the daughters of Putiel, meaning the sense of Yisro, who fattened calves for idolatry, and from the sense of Joseph, who made light of his passion and prevailed over when he was tempted by Putiel's wife. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. Look at that. That's crazy. Descendant of Joseph, maternal grandfather. Pinchas was the son of a Lazar. So Lazar's wife, her, her father was from the from Yosef, and her mother, his mother's mother, was from. No, his mother's. It may be from Yisra. Yeah. Lazar's son of Aaron took himself one of the daughters of Patil. All right. I, the family tree is, is I'm, I'm missing the family tree. Right now in my head, I'm like very close, but I'm not, not fully there. So let's move on. Bottom line is, that's why he did it, because of Joseph's revenge against the Midianites who sold him into slavery. I mean, the brothers did, but then the Midianites sold him. Another day... <coughs> Another reason why Pinchas, he was the Kohen anointed for war. There was always one Kohen who was in charge of the battle, in charge of the wars, and he was that one. Sacred utensils. As Mark pointed out, we have a good Rashi here. The Holy Ark and the Golden Show Plate. He took the, whole, the Holy Ark and the Golden Show Plate. That's, um, that's the forehead plate. Since Balaam was with them and through sorcery was able to make the Midianite kings fly. Oh, there you go. Yep. Balaam was there collecting his debt 
And then when the, when the fighting started, he was able to give the Midianites, the Midianite kings, supernatural powers, the power of flight. And he flew along with them. So Pinchas showed them the show plate on which God's name was engraved, and they fell down to earth. Okay. Rashi wrote this commentary in France eight to 900 years ago. This is well before comic books. Do you know what I picture? I picture the comic book where you have one guy flying and the other guy using the laser eyes, yeah, to bring him down or to neutralize him. That's what's going on. The Midianite kings are flying with Balaam and Pinchas with the forehead plate is bringing them down into battle. There you have it. There you have it. Straight up. For this reason, it says concerning the Midianite kings, upon their slain. For they fell from the air on top of those slain. Likewise, it says in the book of Joshua, in connection with Balaam, upon their slain, meaning they fell down on top of everyone else. Um, in his possessions, in his hand, similarly taking all the land from his possession. Five kings of Midian. So the question Rashi asks is, why does the Torah tell us five? If we count up all the people, Evi, Rechem, Tzur, Chor, and, 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 and Reva, Reva, you get five. I say the five kings. Do I not see that the verse lists five kings? Why is it necessary for Scripture to say the word five? But it's to teach you that they were all equally involved in the conspiracy. And they all received the same punishment. Balaam went there to Midian. Ah, oh, this, is, this is what I was telling you before. Balaam went there to Midian to receive his reward, his compensation for the 24,000 that had fallen from Israel as a result of his advice. And now he left Midian to meet the Israelites and he offered them harmful advice. He said to them, if when you were 600,000 you cannot overcome them and now with 12,000 you come to fight, they gave him his just desserts. Oh wow, just desserts? That's a pretty loose translation, I'm sure. Nasnal ischare means they gave him his compensation, his recompense. But just desserts is, uh, is, is, might as well, let's go fun with the translation here. He gave him just desserts in full without depriving him in the least. In other words, they gave him his full wallop. He gave bad advice against the Jewish people once. He tried to give it again now. And so they killed him. With the sword, he came against Israel and, incurred, and exchanged his craft for theirs. For they are victorious only with their mouths. Jews used their mouth, prayer, through prayer and supplication. And he came and adopted their craft to curse them with his mouth. So they too came against him by exchanging their craft for his craft, for the craft of the nations who come by the sword, as it says concerning Esau, and you shall live by your sword. So he tried to use his mouth, so they used the sword, and thus he, they, he was killed. It's a fire to the castles, uh, the place of their notaries. The place of their palaces, which is an expression denoting the residence of the priests, knowledgeable in their laws. Another interpretation, the residence of their, of their lords, the lords of the Philistines. They took all the booty that teaches us that they were virtuous and righteous and were not sus suspect of theft to appropriate the booty without permission. No soldiers went of the 12,000 and pocketed some stuff. Put a little gold, uh, gold uh, jewelry in here, a little diamond in here. Let's call it a day. They didn't do that. They didn't do that. Uh, for it says, all the booty. They brought everything back. And tradition, the prophets and the writing, Scripture explicitly refers to them. For it says, your teeth are like a flock of ewes. Even your warriors, they are all righteous. Uh, booty, movable objects such as garments and ornaments. Spoil is plunder, plunder movable objects which are not ornaments. And plunder is man and beast. 
But when captives is mentioned together with plunder, the captives refer to people and, to, and the plunder to animals. All right. We're going to end here. Wow. This is like a long reading. We only did reading one of our double reading. So just so you know, just so you know, you know, Mondays we usually try to do one and two, but one is already one and two because it's double reading. So what we did today was we spoke about the laws of vows and keeping true to our word. And then we spoke about the, the battle, the war against Midian taking revenge. I want to share with you, in, in conclusion, a mystical ascetic insight. This is actually a, a, a text that we studied a few years ago at Kabbalah and Coffee. What is the final battle of Moses against Midian? What is it symbolically? Midian is also related to the expression Madonu Mariva, which means fighting and fracturing. Dividing, dividing, creating divisiveness, animosity, hatred, sowing enmity and hatred and disillusionment amongst the people, which is really what Midian tried to do. Midian tried to create fighting amongst the Jewish ranks. Some would be involved in the idolatry and morality, others would try to stop them and it would create a civil war, which it almost did until Pinchas came along and killed the, uh, the Jewish tribal leader, Zimri. Is that what the sword was used to kill Balaam? Probably. Yeah. But on a mystical level, Midian represents the klipa, the negativity of fighting. Fighting. And the Torah is telling us, again, this is the Hasidic, the mystical understanding of it. The Torah is telling us that this is the final battle, the final frontier. Just like Moses' final battle is against Midian, our final battle in exile is against Midian, is against the fighting. So, all too often, we are splintered and fragmented. Sinaschinam, we have baseless hatred, we just don't, don't like people for no reason. And this is why the temple was destroyed. So it's very appropriate that we're studying, that we're reading this Torah portion in the three weeks, or week two of the three weeks in which we think about the temple's destruction, how to fix it. The only way to fix it is by undoing the cause. The cause of the temple's destruction, the second temple's destruction was baseless hatred, the, the, the way to fix that is by, by pure, baseless love. I love you just because, for no reason, for no good reason. I, but I love you. That's it. That's how we heal the hatred, heal the hate. And so the message here is, let's go to war against the inner Midian, against the inner voice that says, let's fight with somebody else, let's create conflict, let's create fracturing, fragmentation, let's break, let's fight, let's heal. Instead of fighting... Let's combat that with a little Moses, with a little, uh, it's, it's ironic that the battle against Midian means the, the application of peace, but so it is explained in the Hasidic discourses, in this, uh, in the Maimar Hechotzu, the discourse Hechotzu, that's based off of this reading right here. It's about loving unconditionally, loving without borders, loving without boundaries. Midian represents hate. The antidote to hate is love. Let's love, and let's heal, and let's find peace. Peace doesn't always mean we see eye to eye, but peace means we cannot see eye to eye, but still remain in a state of peace. We don't have to fight. All right, so with this, let's conclude. Uh, our commitment to peace should help schlep us out of this exile, bring Mashiach, and return us to the third temple, speedily in our days, and let us say, Amen. Thank you for joining me today. Tomorrow, same bad time, same bad channel. And uh, that, is, that is it. All right, any questions or comments? 
I'm not exactly sure where teeth come from, because uh, it's not in the Torah, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, that the warriors are like teeth. Yeah. Um, hold on. Let me look at Rashi like again. Like yeah. Which, um, which, oh, um, is uh, 11 yeah is it 11 yeah yeah 11. oh here um right your teeth are like a flaw like a flock of ewes. i guess it's understood oh see rashi and song of song okay let's do it let's see rashi and song of songs let's jump in You are now transported to Song of Songs, chapter 6, verse 6. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes. What does that mean? Rashi, the officers and the mighty men among you are all devoted to goodness. Teeth, I guess that's what bites. right? That's what the teeth would be like the soldiers, like the officers, the mighty men. That means like the warriors. The teeth, right? And still they're like ewes. They're like gentle creatures. They're dedicated to goodness. Even the fighters are gentle, have a gentle spirit. Um. Yeah, that's their animal spirit. Use, use. Does that do with prayer? I don't know. No, it sounds like uh, no, sounds. No, earlier, earlier said uh, uh, Israel's craft was this mouth. Right. See, yeah. even when, even when they fight, even when they bite, there's still a commitment to uh, to honesty and uh, righteousness. That's how I'm understanding it. All right. We'll see y'all. Have a wonderful day. Catch you tomorrow. Same bad time, same bad channel. See ya. Yom Tov. Pleasure. Sarah, Mark, Sandrine. See you guys. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at IntownJewishAcademy.org and on YouTube at IntownJewishAcademy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.